Good morning. It is good to be together. Amen? Yes, it is. Let us open our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 8. Acts, chapter 8. This morning we'll be reading verses 1 through 8. We are making progress through the book of Acts. Believe it or not. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Listen to the reading of God's word this morning. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose in that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this blessed opportunity that we have to open your word and hear from you once again. As we do so week after week, Sunday after Sunday, we are here because we need you. And we need to be reminded of your sovereign power your unending love for us in Christ Jesus. So we pray that sinners will be brought to repentance, that saints will be further sanctified, and that the name of Jesus will be exalted above all things. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you have the sermon notes, I have included a quote there that I want us to read together. You don't have to read out loud. I'm just going to read it. You can follow along. The thorn, said Samuel Rutherford, is one of the most cursed and angry weeds that the earth yields. And yet out of it springs the rose, one of the sweetest smelled flowers and most delightful to the eye that the earth has. Those words that are wonderful set up for our study of this morning as we are about to see, and following Rutherford's analogy, Acts 8 first gives us a thorn, a truly cursed and angry kind of thorn, a menacing, intimidating, thirsty for blood kind of thorn, a thorn so sharp that it penetrates deep and the pain is quite, quite real. But this thorn inevitably becomes the precursor to something truly beautiful. This thorn, painful and awful as it is, eventually yields a most beautiful rose. But this is what God does, is it not? Doesn't the Bible constantly tell us how God turns mourning into what? Joy or dancing? Sorrow into joy? And is that not the very message of the gospel itself? That God takes us to glory through what? 
through the sufferings and the death of his beloved son, the Lord Jesus. There's only one way to glory, and that is the way of the cross. There is no other way. What does that mean? It means that suffering through death was necessary for sinners to be taken to glory, for the wages of sin is what? Death. Immediately after our first parents sinned in the Garden of Eden, there was blood shed in order to cover their shame. The skin with which they were covered in the garden indicated the death of an animal. The message was twofold. On the one hand, the Lord said, death is what your sins deserve. On the other hand, the Lord said, but I have made provision for you. I have provided a substitute to take your place and shed its blood so you don't have to. Fast forward to John the Baptist, and we find him seeing Jesus, pointing to Jesus, and saying about Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29, Jesus of Nazareth is the true substitute. Jesus is the true sacrifice. He suffered and died to receive upon himself the wages of sin. And the sin problem Adam initiated, Jesus came to solve definitively. Upon the cross, Jesus said it is Finish, meaning the reign of death brought about by Adam has been brought to an end by his own death. On the cross, Jesus received upon himself what our sins deserved. He did not die for himself. He died for sinners. He received the wages of our sin. Then, only after suffering and dying, did our Lord enter his glory. Now, why is this important? Well, this matters to us not only because our hope and our salvation depend on what the Lord Jesus did in his suffering and death, but also because the death and resurrection of Jesus set the pattern for the church. For you and I, the cross always comes before glory. There is no rose without a thorn. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, as we make our way to the celestial city, we must not forget the call to take up what? Our cross, a forgotten message in our day and age. Otherwise, if there's anyone in this room who is not willing to take up their cross, we cannot pretend to follow the Lord. The first Christians of whom we are learning in Acts were normal human beings in every sense of the word. Just like you and just like me, they had children, they had jobs, and they had concerns, they had worries. Many of them had fears, and they were seeking to understand what it means to walk by faith in the Lord Jesus. But the lesson we must learn from them, from these Acts Christians especially those of us who are used to living in a non-hostile world, 
is this. These believers understood that in following their master and Lord Jesus, they would encounter suffering and sorrow, that the way to glory is often marked by crosses, by sharp thorns that can inflict real pain. And in their case, the thorn was very angry indeed. What do we call this angry thorn? Severe persecution. Severe persecution. This is relevant to us, brothers and sisters. If you haven't noticed, things are changing. Just a little bit? No, a whole lot. We are face-to-face here with one of the most critical turning points in the history of Christianity. The context comes out of verse 1. Saul approved of his execution. Whose execution? Stephen's execution. That is the context of chapter 8. The events that unfolded in chapter 7 gave birth to the events of chapter 8. And what was the central event of Acts chapter 7? Stephen's stoning. He was stoned to death. Why? Because Stephen came and he exposed the idolatry of the Jewish nation, of the Jewish leaders. Their idolatry with regard to the temple their hatred with regard to the prophets, their hypocrisy with regard to the law, and their rejection of God himself. They didn't take that very well. They were infuriated, and they decided to kill him. You know why? Because at bottom, Stephen's message was a call to repentance a call to repentance. And here's something very unique about human nature. And you know this. I know it. Man does not want to be told to repent. If you have children, you know this. Why not? Because the call to repentance assumes the presence of what? Sin and evil. So when we are told to repent... We are being called sinners. And this explains the reality of persecution, at least in part. The gospel message is about bringing sinners to the end of themselves. In other words, the message of the cross of Jesus is a message that reveals the true depth of human depravity and hopelessness. So when we point people to Jesus, we are saying two things. First, Look at God's amazing grace demonstrated in the suffering and death of his son. That is the first part of the message of the gospel. But second, the second part of the message is this. Look at how evil you really are. When we point people to Jesus, we're saying, look at God's amazing grace. But secondly, look at how evil your sins really are. Your sins deserve death. Your sins deserve death. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. Only the precious blood of God's Son can grant you forgiveness. One preacher said that Jesus came to be your self-esteem booster. Well, he was wrong. And if he died believing that, because he's dead now, I, I don't know where he stands. The death of Jesus reveals the true depth of your sin, the true ugliness of our sin, the true evil within us. 
You see, Stephen was speaking to a group of self-righteous people, men who saw themselves as worthy and deserving of God's favor. And if that's you this morning, I have news for you. You are not. You're not worthy and you're not deserving of God's favor. It takes the blood of the Holy Son of God for you to be forgiven. Therefore, Stephen's message hit a nerve, a very sensitive nerve. Jesus came, he said, Jesus came because apart from him, you deserve God's justice and wrath, not his favor. That's how evil you really are. In fact, you are so evil, Stephen said to the Jews, that when God himself came in the flesh, he showed up, you killed him. You killed him. That's how evil you really are. And the one you killed, to add to all of this, is now exalted at the Father's right hand. He's the Son of Man, and he has all authority over all the world, and you must bow the knee to him. What happened is that this started fierce persecution, the first widespread wave of persecution against Christians. And so what did they do? They gave full vent to their hatred against Stephen, and they killed him with stones. And after doing that, these religious hypocrites are now bent on inflicting suffering on anyone who, like Stephen, also believed in Jesus of Nazareth. In Acts chapter 1, chapter 8, verse 1, we are introduced to one of the main instigators of this persecution, Saul. As he watched Stephen's body being destroyed by excruciatingly painful blows with stones, he approved. He approved. Saul was a murderer. To Christians in the first century, Saul would have been a, what we consider a modern-day terrorist. The summary of what he did against the church is in that word in verse 3. But Saul was ravaging the church. That word is loaded with evil. To ravage is to ascribe dishonor to something in order or with the purpose of mistreating it. What Saul was doing was to treat Christians as unworthy of anything better than prison, suffering, and even death. He went from house to house, quite literally, dragging Christians out and throwing them in prison. From Acts chapter 26, verse 11, we will learn that Paul sought to make Christians blaspheme the name of Christ by renouncing the name of Christ. That being the case, it is more than likely that Saul's persecution against the church included torture, both physical and mental. Saul was a very evil man, willing to go to great lengths to inflict deep pain and suffering upon the church. But you know what this stands for? I believe Paul, I'm sorry, Saul, he stands as a vivid illustration of satanic rage against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Saul was but a visible demonstration of Satan's invisible hatred of the truth and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Herein lies the reason why this hatred continues until today. The true instigator of hatred against God and his gospel in the Lord Jesus is Satan. Since this is the case, brothers and sisters, you and I can expect the world to continue to react violently to the truth. There is no way around it. Moreover, brothers and sisters in Christ, the message of the gospel has not changed. Jesus died because of sin. 
because of our sin. Thus, the message of the cross still confronts sinners with their need to believe and repent of their sins. And if the self-righteous people of the first century hated that message then, guess what? Self-righteous people will hate this message today. And this is what creates the thorn, that painful thorn of persecution. And friends, it is painful. Please notice the heaviness, the heaviness in verse 2. The man who buried Stephen's body made great lamentation over him. What does that tell us? First of all, it tells us that Christians are not Stoics who simply pretend to ignore real suffering and real pain and real sorrow. Second, it reveals the wonderful yet raw beauty of biblical revelation. I love the fact that the Bible never seeks to hide the fact that at times, under certain severe trials and tribulations, the church does suffer. See, prosperity gospel is not really true. Just ask these Christians. Every day is a Friday? Are you kidding me? No, not every day is a Friday, not for the Christian. Christianity is a truly human experience in every respect. And for those who didn't get that reference, that's Joel Osteen's book. Don't buy it, don't read it. Even speaking of our own private experience, we can all see that the Christian life is a type of rose. Thorns and petals included. The Christian life is a beautiful thing, for we always walk by the side of Jesus. He is our ever-faithful Lord. He is all-beautiful, all-loving, all-holy. He is precious in our sight, but sometimes out of his good, good and perfect will, he does lead us into path of thorn bushes. And the wounds can at times go deep. In this particular case, a faithful, well-loved brother was stoned to death and they lamented. But wait a minute, doesn't the Bible say that we need to rejoice in our sufferings? How come they lamented? Did they sin against the Lord? Of course not. They did not sin because the call to rejoice in our sufferings is not a call to ignore our sufferings. Lamentation is a real thing. Painful indeed. Rather, the call to rejoice in our sufferings is about knowing that our suffering, no matter how deep, is never wasted, meaning it always leads to something good. It is always for our good. And in this we can and we do rejoice. For the Christian who walks by faith, the thorn always leads to the rose. Did you know? that this is one of the reasons why Karl Marx hated the Christian faith. You didn't see that coming, huh? Talking about Karl Marx. What? Well, let me explain. The Marxist agenda is to create revolution in society. But how do you create revolution? Well, there's only one way to create revolution, and it's by keeping people frustrated and dissatisfied with the world and with their lives. They're always angry. Conflict is central to the Marxist idea. 
Marx did not like the Christian faith because the Christian faith in the gospel provides a framework within which pain and suffering do make sense. Christian theology and the Christian faith explain pain and suffering, such as persecution, as simply a means to a good end. Therefore, a world influenced by the Christian faith and the Christian conviction, a world in which the hope of the gospel permeates every facet of life, won't be primed for revolution. You need to get that hope out of the heart. You need to get that hope out of the mind. If you want revolution, you need people who are always frustrated, always angry, always generating conflict. And what are we seeing today? A lot of angry people, a lot of frustrated people, a lot of dissatisfied people. But Christians don't live this way. If Acts 8 teaches us anything, is that Christians never lose their hope and that out of the thorns of life, God is always bringing the rose. So now we ask, what was the rose that came out of this fierce persecution? What was the rose that Stephen's death yielded? Well, here's the beautiful rose, the spread of the knowledge of the Lord. The spread of the knowledge of the Lord. In his book, Turning Points, Decisive Moments in the History of Christianity, historian Mark Knowles points to the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in the year 70 AD as the first major turning point for the church. Interestingly, this is what he says about that particular period of time. Quote, the blows that Roman generals rained upon Jerusalem did not destroy the Christian church. Rather, they liberated the church for its destiny as a universal religion offered to the whole world. End quote. Did you hear that? The fall of Jerusalem, this historian said, liberated the church for its destiny as a universal religion offered to the whole world. Now, even though that is true, before the Romans did that in the year 70 AD, the Jews also did in Acts chapter 8. Consider what it says in verses 4 and 5. Now, those who were scattered because of what? Why were they scattered? Because of persecution. By whom? By the Jewish council. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. How frustrating for the thorn to know that it is only the precursor to something truly beautiful. Verses 4 and 5 reminded me of one of the most hopeful verses in all of the Bible, a verse spoken by prophet Habakkuk. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, the Bible says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Verses 4 and 5 of Acts 8 are a critical turning point in the history of Christianity. For in these verses, we begin to see the filling of the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. The message of salvation by grace, which had been mostly confined to one nation, the nation of Israel, was now spreading like water over the sea. And what did Jesus say to the disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? 
and you will be my witnesses in where? First, Jerusalem, and then in all Judea and Samaria. And this great persecution started as this sharp thorn punctured through the very heart and the soul of these Christians. The gospel spread precisely to Judea and Samaria. And as they went, they took the message of the glory of the Lord with them. Now, I just want to briefly mention the importance of Samaria. Few other places could show the true power of the gospel to reconcile and unite not only people to God, but also to each other. Samaria had a very long and complex history. In fact, notice with me what we read in verse 14. Notice the the unique nature of Samaria. When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. And then he makes a very strange comment about the Holy Spirit, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Interesting statement. Why does it say that? Well, in the first place, because Samaria was a very unique place with a very unique story, but we'll get into that next Sunday as we see the story in more detail. But this is a monumental moment in the history of Israel and in the spread of the gospel around the world. As I said, we'll we'll see more details of the significance of this moment next Sunday. For now, let me point out how Luke summarizes what the first disciples did. They went about preaching the word, and Philip proclaimed who? Christ. Philip proclaimed Christ. Those are two expressions that can mean the same thing. We preach the word in order to proclaim Christ because as Stephen said already in Acts chapter 7, the word is ultimately about Christ. So we preach the word to preach Christ. Now, there is a massively important reminder here, brothers and sisters. Who were the people scattered doing the preaching? Well, it says clearly and explicitly at the end of verse 1, it was not the apostles. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. They were not scattered because of the persecution. So who are the people scattered doing all the preaching? Well, if not the apostles, then regular disciples. Interesting, isn't it? Regular disciples preaching the word, people like you and people like me. Which brings us to an interesting insight. And we're going to transition here into our last part, the truths to remember. The problem with Christians is that we are too quiet. We are too quiet. We don't want to speak anymore. And brothers and sisters, please remember what I'm about to say. If we don't speak the word to the world, other messages will take its place. In fact, the world, I would say the world is the way it is in great part because the church has remained silent while the world is speaking very, very loudly. All of this leads us to our last section, the truths to remember. 
I want to make some points of application here for us. The first one is this, letter A, seasons of persecution and oppression are meant to embolden us, not discourage us. Seasons of persecution and oppression are meant to embolden us, not to discourage us. I don't think we're in times of persecution. I think that's, we're not there. But I do think there is oppression. There's oppression going on, ideological oppression. But Christians seem to be afraid because the times are changing. This is impossible to deny. And there have been many Christian casualties along the way. The ongoing rise of the so-called Christian deconstructionism is a proof of this reality. And I've noticed that deconstructionism almost inevitably leads to a complete renunciation of the faith. So let me tell you why I think this is happening in our context, in our world right now. I think deconstructionism is at bottom, and pay attention to this because this may speak to you directly. I believe deconstructionism is at bottom a desire for glory that seeks to bypass the cross. A desire for glory that seeks to bypass the cross. Let me explain. Ultimately, people who deconstruct their faith want a crossless Christianity where all they have to carry is a simple assurance of heavenly glory while keeping all the pleasures of the flesh and the approval of the world. That's the source of deconstructionism. They are torn. They want the pleasures of the flesh, the approval of the world, but they want a little hope of glory. They are falling under the pressure. It's happening everywhere. So they reduce their Christian convictions to the bare minimum. Just enough to assure themselves of the hope of heaven, but not too much to guarantee a persecution-free life where you get to keep all your friends and you, can get, to keep, you get to keep your popularity. But this is not Christianity. And if that's you, you might just be deceiving yourself. Very dangerous territory. Living, you must realize, you must understand, I have to realize this, and you have to realize this, living and speaking as a Christian, truthfully, especially in our world, will have consequences. In some cases, these will be severe. But that's no secret. Jesus said thousands of years ago, in this world, you will have, peace, and a big house, and no, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So let me just say that if, if that's you this morning, okay, if, if you are being tempted to deconstruct your faith, to, to put aside the, the more controversial truths of Scripture in order to make more and more room for evil ideologies of our day so that you can live a more peaceful life, enjoying the acceptance of the world, then I ask you the question that has resonated for thousands of years down to our present. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? but forfeits his soul. Let me ask you this, Christian. So what? 
if the world loves you. So what? If the world loves you, at the end of your life, you will have gained nothing but only the eternal destruction of your soul. Acts chapter 8 shows us our ancient brothers and sisters willingly taking up their cross in order to follow Christ, even at a great cost. Even at great cost. Persecution emboldened them. Today we're under great ideological oppression, but we are a people of the truth. And the question you need to ask yourself is, will you stand for it? Will you stand for the truth? Letter B, widespread darkness is a call to shine even more brightly. In other words, do not let the current changes intimidate you. Don't. Are not these times of great moral decay and darkness? You can say yes, feel free. Is there a question that our world is taking a turn for the worse? Are we not seeing more and more corruption, for example, take over politics? This means yes. We can, for example, we can, uh, we can no longer deny the painful, obviously painful hypocrisy of people who, on the one hand, they cry out loud against the mass shooting taking place and the death of little children in school, while the same people are promoting the murder of infants in the womb. It is hard for me to even listen to someone be upset about, about mass shootings of children when with the other side of their mouths they approve and even seek to protect the right of adults to murder their own unborn child. This is hypocrisy. True hypocrisy. And that's just one example. So what do we do? What do we do, Christian? What's your role? What's my role? Remember what they did? Christians, they were scattered, and what did they do? They took the word with them. They did not scatter to hide, but to preach. We don't hide. We shine. People don't put a light under a bus basket, but on a stand. Remember, when Jesus came into the world, the darkness did not overcome him, nor will darkness overcome his truth. We must let the truth shine. We must. Let her see. Christian unity, Christian unity is critical, especially in times of growing hostility. I don't know if you saw it in verse 1. Let's look at verse 1 again. Notice that great persecution arose against the what? The church. You must give close attention to those words because they speak about Christian as belonging to a body. Notice that Paul did not go to a church building, but from house to house. Do you see the beauty in this? There's a hidden beauty in this. Even when Christians are scattered, they are one. Even when Christians are scattered, they are one. When you and I go home, we remain as one because the church is not only what happens here, 
The church is also an identity. The church is a people in union with Christ, which means they're also in union with each other. And speaking of unity, let me narrow this point even further by giving you my next point, which is the answer to the one question, unity in what? Well, this is letter D. We preach Christ according to the Word. Why do you think it's important to say there, according to the Word, and not just Christ, but Christ according to the Word? Well, we don't preach the Christ of the Jehovah's Witness. We don't preach the Christ of the Mormons. We preach the Christ of the Word. So let us be clear on what our message is. As we live in this world, we are not sent into the world to preach a higher morality or some secret wisdom as if we were Gnostics. We are sent to be witnesses, meaning we are like John the Baptist in the sense that our calling is this. Through our words, through our actions and our decisions, we are pointing people to a person, to a person. Just as John the Baptist pointed and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, when he saw Jesus, we too are called to point people to Christ. Notice that this is what Philip proclaimed in Samaria. He proclaimed a person, a name, Christ Jesus. He spoke of him. He pointed people to Jesus, which also reveals why Christians proclaimed Christ back then and why we must proclaim Christ still and more so than ever. Why? Why do we need to proclaim Christ? Well, because the ultimate problem with the world is its rejection of the lordship of Jesus. That's it. That's it. The ultimate problem with the world is its rejection of the lordship of Jesus. Why are Christians in the world? Why are you and I here? Why is the church still here? Well, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10, quickly, verses 9 and 10. We are here, we are left in this world so that we might live our lives doing two things. Two things. We can reduce it to two words, confessing and believing. That's it. We are left in this world to confess and to believe. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. For if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let me ask you this. Is this a one-time only confession of the Lordship of Jesus and a one-time only belief that he's risen? Is Paul here saying that all it takes to be a Christian who has the assurance of salvation is to say those three magical words, Jesus is Lord, once and forget about it so you can go on with your life? Of course not. What an insult that would be. May it never be. To confess that Jesus is Lord and to believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead is a lifetime of confession and a lifetime of belief. This is why I have a problem with the invitation system so popular in so many evangelical churches where you invite people at the end to receive Christ and what happens? What is the message you're sending? It's a one-time deal. You come to the front, you receive him, go home, live your life as normal. What is the call of the gospel? 
You will confess the lordship of Jesus until the day you die. And you will believe that he's alive, he rose from the dead until the day you die. And sometimes it will cost you to do so in a fallen world. We live our entire lives confessing his lordship and our entire lives believing that he is risen. In that sense, the church, you and I, the church is a flesh and bone letter that testifies to the world concerning the power, the grace, and the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, we must be careful in what sense, in the following sense, we must not allow secondary issues, though important, but secondary issues nonetheless to divide us. In these very hostile times, we need to be crystal clear in what matters most. And what matters most is Jesus is Lord. And we're seeking to live accordingly. He's Lord. His person, the person of Christ and his work. We need this clarity today more than ever, brothers and sisters. If we are honest with ourselves, there are many, way too many issues taking place in our society and the world that feel much like a thorn. Have you felt that? Have you experienced that in the last months and years, things that are thorny? For instance, we live in a world so bizarre, so bizarre, that someone thought it would be a good idea to dedicate an entire month, this very month, the month of June, to be an extended celebration of rampant, uninhibited sexual immorality. And so now people would want us to call June Pride Month. Pride Month. And by pride, they mean pride in human autonomy. Pride in human rebellion. Pride in human arrogance. Pride in sin. You know what that is? The so-called Pride Month is nothing more than a glaring demonstration that human beings are, in their very core, religious. Religious. They will worship something. Pride Month, make no mistake about this. Pride Month is a religious act. It's a religious act. It is the worship of the self. Pride Month is the world preaching their God very loudly. And what are we doing about it? We have the real message, the real hope. Pride Month is the world preaching their God very loudly. It is a false God that cannot save nor can it offer any hope. It can only destroy, but it is a God. It is a miserable idol. It's called the self, but we, brothers and sisters, we preach Christ. And what do we say about Christ? Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians 4 or 5, and we're almost done. Just kidding. We have an hour left. Ah, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. The same thing Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 5. So as we go into the world, what do we say to the world about the Lord Jesus Christ? We say this, 2 Corinthians 4, 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as what? Lord, he has authority. 
He has authority. The world is not an autonomous place, self-sustaining. It is Christ who sustains it. But sinners, small and miserable as they are, they want independence from him. Pride Month is a cry for independence, emancipation, freedom, but not a freedom to be truly free, rather a freedom to remain a slave, a slave to sin and a slave to Satan. And we cannot and we will not remain silent. Homosexuality, and I say this with Love and mercy and compassion, homosexuality, is not a virtue to be celebrated, but a sin to be repented of. But there are churches compromising everywhere. And the one who stands behind the church's call to repentance is the one who has all authority, Christ. Christ himself the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. We proclaim Jesus as Lord. That is our message. We may disagree on other issues, but not on this one. We cannot. Jesus is Lord. Next, and we're going we're to go through this really fast. God ordains the thorn in order to create the rose. He ordains it to create something beautiful. In fact, I'm already celebrating because of everything that is taking place in our world today. I'm already celebrating the fact that Christians can no longer ignore the call to be bold. They can no longer ignore the increasing cost of discipleship and what it means to follow the Lord. And yes, there will be some who will fall under the pressure, deconstruct their faith, and they will be found with nothing left. But those who remain will be stronger than ever in their faith in the Lord. So my call to you, my brother and sister, persevere, persevere. The thorn will pass. It may get sharper and more painful in the years to come. It is possible the trial will continue and darkness will seem to prevail, but Jesus will never lose. Even if for a season all we see is decay, the gospel will prevail. And these things will pass. And I finish with this, letter F. Our hope is unshaken. Our hope is unshaken. As you Consider those words, just turn for one last time to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Even if none of us gets to see the actual triumph of the gospel of Jesus Christ through the sufferings and faithfulness of the church on earth, take heart, my friend. God is the God of history. To him belong the times and the season. History is not a random assortment of independent, unrelated facts. It is all moving toward a glorious end. And we know that at the end of it all, at the end of it all, when human history has reached its purpose and its end, the church of the Lord Jesus will stand in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. No blemish will be found in her and the blood of the martyrs, the sufferings of the saints, and the oppression of believers will all be vindicated when the Lord Jesus comes for his church. But in the meantime, we remember this, 2 Corinthians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all what? Comfort. Who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For we, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort 
which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Verse 7, our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Let us pray to the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word, which is always, always true, and it will never change. And Father, we pray for the comfort of, for your comfort, the comfort of the Spirit to come upon our hearts as we consider the one who suffered and died and then enter his glory. We know that there is much work to be done in this world, Lord, and we know that some of that work will include pain and suffering, and we will feel the rejection of the world as we stand upon your truth. But Father, we pray for that comfort and for the boldness that we see in the lives and the ministry of the apostles and the first believers. For we know that this world continues to change. Hostilities are rising, and yet your truth remains the same. So Father, help us to take a stand upon the truth out of love for the people that you're calling to yourself. Let us not waver in these times of hostility, but to remember that Jesus is the one with all authority. And so, Father, as we go outside of this building and as we navigate life and relate to our neighbors and coworkers and friends and family and wives and husbands and children, help us to do so to the glory of Christ and for his name. And may our lives be a reflection of the work that you have done and are doing in us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.